0: Welcome to another edition of the Unicorns Podcast. This is a podcast series featuring business leaders, motivators, innovators, and general go-getters. Today on the Unicorns, we're talking all things drones. And the drones we're going to be looking into today are not the -the off-the-shelf type that you might find in a department store or you can buy online. They're the big ones, the really big ones built for Industrial purposes. One of the companies at the centre of this drone work in Australia is Carbonics. It's a reasonably new business. It's had some great press lately and it's just completed a capital raise. It's being noticed in all the right places. Dario Valenza is the founder and CTO of Carbonics and he's my guest on the programme today. Dario, welcome to the programme.
1: Hi Justin, great to be here. Okay,
0: so how did Carbonics get started?
1: It's uh, originally um, a spin-off of some technology developed in America's Cup yacht racing, uh, specifically uh, lightweight carbon fiber and the design processes that go with making aeroelastic structures out of it. Uh, So that's a fancy way of saying um, structures designed to go through fluids. So originally it was racing boats. Uh, applies to uh, sail, to race cars and um, yeah. uh, things like flying machines and drones. Um, and over time, we've evolved to uh, develop not just the airframe, which was sort of the starting point and the core of the IP, uh, to the command and control and the various avionics and electronics that go into making the aerial data capture system work. So you
0: like the... Um... Just winding back the clock a bit, Ben Lexon and his winged keel. <laughs> with America's Cup, you've applied that technology to drones. Uh,
1: something like that. I, <laughs> I think it's um the the parallel there is uh, the thinking that comes out of uh, competitive environments, so mm-hmm. whether it's formula one or or auto racing. Um, you have a, a focus on technology, a focus on performance. And you have some uh, very well-defined constraints uh, in terms of uh, whether it's the, the rule that the, the vehicle has to conform to, uh, the resources allocated to the team, and the time that you have, because um, the mm-hmm. proverbial race starts on Sunday and you better be ready. Yeah. Um, so, so it's really a, a, a mindset and a philosophy to, to do the most with what you have or to, to allocate resources efficiently. Yeah. Uh, to gain performance in a competitive environment. So that gives um, opportunity for ideas to come out and be explored. Uh, and the wing kill is an example of some lateral thinking that was applied mm. to uh, what at the time was already a fairly mature rule and a fairly mature game.
0: That was, that was groundbreaking at the time, if, uh, uh, if you remember.
1: Uh, it was, and, and this this kind of evolution does does go in sort of yeah. fits and starts um the the boats had been trending uh at the time towards uh what we'd call a rule cheat effectively which is a a way to um sneak uh volume uh basically in, into the hull uh, without the rule picking it up mm. um and that that led to the keels becoming progressively more a separate element to the hull rather than if you look at a, a classic yacht uh, before the 80s uh, the, the keel is almost like a a fed in part of the canoe body, um, and over time in, in other classes this was going on as well. But in the America's Cup, you, again, you had the resources to put into the tank testing and, and building test boats and doing two boat testing, uh, and, and really gaining an understanding of the advantage of separating the keel out from the hull, mm-hmm. um, and that ultimately uh, led to the sort of leap of well, if we put wings on the end of the keel, we can both increase the efficiency of the keel hydrofoil uh, and uh, move the, the ballast, the mass, really down low yeah. in the hull. So it's, it's a solution that, that comes out of competition. And, and there are other examples of that throughout both the history of the cup and um, other competitive endeavours where lateral thinking is rewarded if it's got the, the space, the culture, and the resources to, to really be applied.
0: So, Dario, what was it when you, when you looked at uh, the yachts and thought Actually, I could apply this technology to drones. What was what was that moment? How did like how did all of that start? Uh,
1: absolutely, it's uh, it was a I guess a gradual thing. So the 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 plan from the beginning was always to apply the technology to different realms. Okay. Um, and so we we were I guess on the lookout for 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 problems that that we could solve with this uh, both the, the materials and the technology that we developed um i'd actually always had an interest in in radio controlled yachts uh which Mm -hmm. again are sort of self-sufficient uh performance focused um are they radio radio controlled yachts uh so they're they're glorified model boats in a way Mm. but um they're they're designed also to a rule um there are there's a class called the Marblehead, which was developed in the in the 1950s if i'm not mistaken in, in marblehead in massachusetts since the name mm-hmm. um and they basically you have a, a 50 inch uh, overall length um and a, a fixed uh, area of sale that you're allowed and within those constraints you can basically design what you want um and over time they've been uh, a few years ahead of of uh, full-size yachts in terms of the the radical ideas that they've tested out and Um, They actually originally were steered uh, with a vane gear that that basically self-aligned with the wind and and very crude sort of analogue autopilot.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, And then in in the 70s and the 80s, they started um, with accessible electronics. You'd have a a radio controller. uh, And and they race as as though they're they're full-size yachts. Uh, But again, being small and and not having anyone on board, you you can really iterate aggressively and uh, try different ideas and, and different techniques. Uh, and one of the the things that you have to achieve is the boat more or less has to sail itself. It has to be balanced. Um, and And in that realm um, the the application of lightweight, very rigid materials such as carbon fiber mm-hmm. uh, engineered to to flex and and behave in ways that are aerodynamically constructive. Um, that, that was an obvious application, and, and there was a you know, small commercial case for, for actually uh, building them in series and, and distributing them. Um, and so the drones initially were very much an analogue of that. It was, yeah. well, we can take this um, the, this ability to, to make aerodynamically efficient airframes, um, apply it to, to radio-controlled yacht, same, uh, it would apply to radio-controlled aircraft. And, and what we really saw was that, um, again, this is, five six years ago yes um the the drone industry was was at a point where multi-rotors were starting to become commoditized as as you said in your introduction they're fairly well understood you can buy them off the shelf uh and they're practical because they they can take off vertically they can hover yeah they're self-stabilizing um but they really have the fundamental constraint that they can only fly for half an hour maximum and even though you You can put bigger batteries on but you end up chasing the weight because the whole thing is heavier than you need um, more powerful motors so the fundamental physics effectively mean that they're they're limited in their scope and they're brilliant at what they do because you you can again you can fly them indoors you can fly them next to structures Um, they they take some of the skill out in terms of being self-stabilizing and then from those commoditized multi-rotors there was this big gap um, in both the airframes and the avionics uh until you get to the really large military stuff uh which are effectively multi-million dollar uh full-size aircraft um and so the opportunity there was uh to take um two three four five kilo payload which, which could be a high resolution still camera or a gimbaled video camera a lidar scanner a gas detector um and and be able to carry that uh for six to ten hours mm. for, for prolonged periods yeah. And, and the only way to do that is with a fixed wing airframe um, which which flies like a conventional air, aircraft um, and then the problem becomes how do you uh, launch it and retrieve it and uh, it's very handy if you have a runway <laughs> have you figured that out yet yeah, <laughs> but yeah so I've, seen, a... I've seen
0: your drone or drones yeah. they are like what what is the scale of them they are huge
1: Dario. Uh, the, again they're, they're huge for for a commercial multi-rotor they're, yes. they're not they're the size so um the damani which is the, the petrol aircraft is uh five and a half odd meter wingspan um mm. and the overall weight of the whole thing is about 35 kilos uh and again of that um a good 10 kilos is the payload and the fuel mm so the lighter you can make the structure for for the for a given overall weight um the more fuel you can carry and the more useful weight you can carry in the in, in the way of the sensor um so so yeah basically the that opportunity to create a, a practical drone that you could launch vertically that could fly for prolonged periods and that could carry a useful payload uh really couldn't happen without an efficient airframe mm-hmm. and and so we, we saw the the carbon fiber technology and the design tools associated with it um as a way to unlock that potential to be able to get that payload up in the air and cover long distances um and that was the beginning of a a long journey because um the airframe is what year
0: are we talking about here you said like five or six years ago was this this when you thought okay i'm gonna do this
1: yeah i think um 2014 15 was really mm-hmm. when we seriously started, and at the time it was going on in parallel with the boats,
0: yeah, of course.
1: Um, and, and it just sort of gradually took mm-hmm. over because it, it the opportunity was so compelling, um, that it made sense to focus all our resources on it. Um, and, and the evolution was, um, initially to, to see okay, the gap is for this efficient airframe because looking around at, at what was available. Um, it was very primitive, if, if at yes. all. Yeah. Um, but we soon discovered that there were other gaps in terms of uh, the propulsion and the avionics, because um, again, we were in this unexplored territory where anything small, for say up to about a five-six kilo drone, uh, you're effectively relying on on uh, an established industry of hobby components. Yes. Yeah. And you can go for the the highest quality hobby component, and it'll, it'll more or less be okay. Um, but it was too small for what we needed uh and then you, you go into the sort of manned sphere and you you're looking at you know an autopilot for a manned aircraft and then you're talking tens of kilos and hundreds of thousands of dollars um and so we we actually had to then knuckle down and say well we we need to develop the whole package yeah how um, are we going to do this yeah exactly so so it's it's really buy what you can off the shelf, test it, validate it um convince yourself that it's it'll do the job uh, and then integrate it uh, as best you can um, and the interesting thing is that over the last five years that supply chain has actually become a lot more mature so things that we couldn't get hold of that we had to do ourselves five years ago yeah uh, we can now buy from a, a company that again has gone through the same evolution okay um uh, actually cube pilot is a really good example they're, they're an australian company is that where you get uh, your parts from uh we, we get some of some of our avionics uh components from them uh and, and they've recently gone through the iso certification and and they're now a, a robust documented proven product that's worthy of uh well being airworthy effectively and <clears throat> being regulated um and so the, that's that's a moving target it's, it's a it's an evolving thing and, and the capability and the expertise that we have is to incorporate the best of what's available Uh, And that that extends to payloads and and other sort of third party components, but really have that expertise to uh, put it on on an airframe that's sort of unmatched in terms of its capability uh, and make the whole thing work and present to the customer something that's a a properly integrated package uh, that effectively works out of the box.
0: So, Dario, did you know much about the industry or have... Any real experience before you made the, the leap of faith to actually
1: dedicate your career to drones? Uh, I'm not sure there was a lot to know in, in terms of it. It's also new. Um, the, the, I think when you look at the big players, they, they would have come out of uh, whether it's consumer electronics or specialist sensors, um, and, and making the sensor fly is a is a pretty new challenge uh so we we joke that there's, there's no such thing as a as an old drone expert <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah um uh, i mean of course in in the military realm uh for sure the, things like the Scan eagle have been around since the 80s um but but there are i guess there's a, there's a generational leap in technology so for example back then uh you couldn't do VTOL it, it just wasn't possible with the electronics at the time so they developed a system where um you you launch off a catapult and you effectively fly it into a wire and and have this sort of controlled crash to get the aircraft back. Um, The the drones as we know them today with multi-rotors and um, fully automated flight control systems and things like that are are very new. We're we're talking certainly in the last five years, Mm. um, there's been a level of maturity in the industry that just wasn't there before.
0: What is the range of your drones? Take us through the specs of how far they can fly, whether they can go out of the line of sight, how long they stay up for, like what, what, paint us a picture.
1: Yeah. So, so there are two, two models. Um, the smaller one we call the Volanti. Um, it's a 15 kilo overall weight uh, and it carries about one kilo for two hours uh, mm-hmm. and it's all electric. So again, it's quite simple. Um the the application there is um, things like surveying a mine site um, uh, whether it's you know law enforcement or uh, security or even things like patrolling beaches uh looking for sharks things like that um it's it's basically uh Yes and no. <laughs> we we've done, okay. um, Yeah, look, there's there's a few projects in the works, but um, yeah. I, I guess that we can say that we've done it at a, at a small scale at okay. a trial level. Yeah. Yep. Um, I think now the challenge is is scaling it, rolling it out mm. to, to to bigger applications.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but we've we've proven it. We've we've flown over um, targets effectively with with a gimbaled camera, um, and do we've got very good. Do you ever um, find anything? Uh, yeah, you find. Um, people getting together in parking lots and (laughs) (laughs) um no it's um it's really looking for well looking at at that things so looking at at assets on the ground um but but there is that that ability to then you can look at it in real time which which is fantastic because we can uh, pipe the video to anywhere on the internet effectively so you can be sitting in an office uh, somewhere and watching the feed in real time and analyzing it um the next step is to bring to bear sort of a i and post processing yeah. to automatically uh recognize objects in in the images and and make it easier to uh do useful things with that data effectively so um, so
0: how are they how are they launched
1: do you need um
0: obviously need someone or a crew to to get them in the air but do you need someone like a a pilot as such on the ground steering them or is it all automated?
1: How does it work? Uh, It's at the moment, the pilot is, uh, I guess you'd call it a a systems um, supervisor. So Mm -hmm. um, the the way you do it is you'd pre-plan your mission. So you have a a user interface. That's basically a a map on a computer. Um, you, You, you design the mission so you have a takeoff point uh, you, you go up a certain height you transition uh to horizontal flight from from the vertical to VTOL, um and then you whether it's a grid or a linear mission you, you pre-plan it and and that comes into some due diligence making sure that the uh, mission plan uh is clear of obstacles uh, yeah. and then there's a whole regulatory side that you're you're doing the right thing by by the airspace um and then you upload that mission to the aircraft and once the aircraft has that mission in its memory uh it can carry it out fully autonomously so it, it'll take off mm-hmm. it'll run the mission it'll come back and land um and is, now it, we, is it
0: beaming footage back live to the to the ground or is that captured and then you have to download it later uh
1: both so the, yeah. the there is uh if the mission is um a gimbal video camera uh it'll be feeding it back live uh and once it's back at the ground station. Uh, you can then reroute that to wherever you need it to go. So as I said before, you, you, can, you can be sitting in the office um, flying the gimbal while the aircraft is doing its thing. So you, you can, we call it flying the gimbal because you, you can zoom, pan, tilt. Uh, you can move the gimbal around totally independently of the aircraft. So the aircraft is just a platform to, to put the gimbal where you want it in space. And And the
0: range, how far can they go and how long can they stay in the air?
1: yeah so for the volante um it has what we call a a network mesh radio that's made up of nodes Uh, so any two nodes uh can be anywhere up to about 150 200 kilometers away from each other in in ideal conditions so realistically it's something like 100 kilometers by the time you take terrain and Mm -hmm. um, uh, other disturbances into account Um, and, and you can set up a network so as long as there's a a continual line between nodes. Uh, you, you have one 100 kilometres away, one 100 kilometres away from that one, and so on. Uh, effectively, you can extend the range indefinitely. Um, for the smaller aircraft, uh, again, that's you're limited by the two hour flight time, mm. which is roughly 200 kilometres if you assume 100 kilometres an hour of, fly, of flying speed. Uh, with the larger aircraft that we call the Domani. Uh, that now has uh, a petrol hybrid system. So there's there's a petrol motor on the aircraft that charges the batteries in flight. Um, And the advantage of that is that obviously petrol is is very energy dense. And by storing um, your energy in in the form of petrol and then converting it into electricity, uh, you can carry more energy for the same mass. Uh, And the advantage of a petrol motor as well is that as you burn the petrol, the aircraft gets lighter, which is a win. Um, with mm. that system, we can fly for up to ten hours. Have you done a
0: mission like that, ten hours in the air?
1: Uh, we've we've done I think up to six so far, mm. and okay. uh, that's that's really just flying circles over the flying field. So <laughs> we've not done a linear mission yeah. that long because of, there's all the, the planning and that that's involved. But that that's coming up very shortly. Um, now that aircraft has a satellite link on it. Uh, which is actually a, a first. There was an announcement recently that Honeywell put out, um, where they're, they're partnering with us to integrate their small form factor satellite. Uh, and again, that, that's that's very new. So uh, a, a satellite system that weighs under five kilos that, that you can carry on a small drone um, is something that was you know, science fiction five years ago. Mm. Um, and and there are challenges to do with the the, the management of the both any electromagnetic interference, thermal, um, effectively the the satellite's very far away. So it takes a lot of energy to uh, send a signal up to it. Um, But if you can do it efficiently, if you can focus the beam, if you can have uh, minimal losses throughout the system, uh, it's possible. And so we're experimenting with that now. We've we've validated on the ground, we've put it on an aircraft. uh, We're in the process of doing the initial tests um so once that comes online that frees you from the requirement of having those network nodes on the ground. Yeah. Um and effectively then uh your range is only limited by the flight time of the aircraft which which is significant.
0: Do you have to get clearance from CASA to send up one of your drones?
1: Uh yes. So again that that's uh something that's been evolving quite rapidly and um uh CASA has been really collaborative in in how they address the challenges of of something that is brand new and they've not really encountered before um so the way it works at the moment is as a as a drone operator you have something called a reoc which is a remote operator certificate uh, and that certifies uh, the business which is the entity that operates the drone so it's sort of like an airline Um, you have a an accreditation that you're a commercial drone operator uh, and under that, you have a register of aircraft, um, both the types and the individual uh, sort of serial numbers. Uh, now, as a manufacturer, uh, we, we sit in a slightly different world uh, because we're not buying something off the shelf and doing regular maintenance mm-hmm. to it, but we're, yeah. we're doing R&D and, and developing it. Um, and then depending on the airspace, uh, with your reoc, you can effectively go off and fly anywhere you want within certain constraints and within certain conditions. Uh, and that's basically uh, either private property or uninhabited areas uh, and within line of sight and within Mm. visual flying conditions. Um, If you want to go beyond that, then you you get effectively approval for that specific flight. Okay. And and BV loss is is one of those approvals. Uh, So beyond visual line of sight uh, where you you present the mission to CASA, you give them your risk assessment um, and they... Come back and either object to it or approve it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you can go off and do it. And, and that process is quite new. Um, it's been overhauled recently to, to make it more streamlined and to take on board the feedback from the industry. Um, and it is becoming more routine. Yeah. Um, but I don't it's think it's so. all fairly
0: new. So, what about uh, Dario, the commercial applications of your drone technology? Where are you using it and where can it be used in the future?
1: yeah so it's (laughs) we're fairly unique in in the in being very agnostic to the application so Mm -hmm. the the aircraft um it has a certain flight profile that, that you can utilize uh and it has the ability to integrate different payloads so if you want to do a mission with a visual camera that might have one application. If you want to do a mission with a scanning lidar, that's another application. So really as a business, uh, it's, it's a form of triage. Like you have to say we, we could go for all these different applications, um, but they all have different returns. So mm. um, something like uh, package deliveries is a really good example where um, there's obviously a lot of hype around it. There's, there's a future there where it, there are applications where it makes sense. Um, but you're dealing with flying over populated areas, interacting with people on the ground. Yeah. Uh, the regulatory right. side of it is, is fairly onerous and fairly long-winded. Uh, so we, we could do that, but it, it, it makes sense to focus on something that is more readily accessible. Um, and, and that really for us has been the linear infrastructure uh, inspection world. Uh, so OSGRID being being an yes, example. Yes, I was going to that. ask
0: about that. Yes, go
1: on. Um, yeah, so it's an application where the, this infrastructure is there. It, it's generally uh, out in the sticks, um, and it does require maintenance. And and to do that maintenance efficiently, you need information about its condition. Uh, and traditionally, you you do that through a mixture of uh, people driving vehicles on the ground looking up. Uh, manned helicopters doing passes uh, low down with, with all the disruption and cost that that entails um, and you know, a combination of, of things like that. Um, we're actually able to, to do these missions um, very uniquely in, in that we, we can fly relatively low, relatively slow, uh, get really close up high resolution images of, of things like power lines, um, poles, uh, the vegetation surrounding the power lines. So the, one of the concerns is um, making sure there's no encroachment where the, the trees end up touching the lines and starting fires. Mm. Um, so so that, that realm of inspections is, is something that is is very scalable because there's a lot of it and it has to happen very regularly. Um, and, and we can do it today because it's, um, it's it's not that that difficult to get the re- regulatory pu- approval, assuming you have the things in place that we do, which is uh, a proven aircraft um, a system of, sort of quality control that guarantees that, that the aircraft is built to a standard uh, and a set of operating procedures and instructions that allow us to minimize the risk. Um, so, so that's really the, the immediate market. And, and that also applies to pipelines, uh, things like mines, uh, national parks. Uh, it's large area surveying um, is really the application uh, in the immediate future, uh, and then obviously as as we scale and and as we become uh, we get the bandwidth to to look at different markets,
0: both mm. right here and, and overseas as well. I imagine. Uh,
1: absolutely. So it's it's actually handy being in Australia for for a number <laughs> of reasons. Yeah. Uh, we do have a lot of that infrastructure here, so there's a big market right at our doorstep, and. The, it makes sense for us to focus on that initially because we can be close to our customer, we can support them, we can get the feedback, um, but we're already looking at, at the US as, as the next um, sort of market to expand into. Uh, and, and we've been approached, like we've sold to, to Harvard, Harvard University among others, um, where th- they've looked all over the world, they've not found uh, a, a machine and a system that can do what, what they wanna do in terms of flying their payload for the, the time that they need. Uh, and so they've come to us. So we we know that we have a very unique tool and capability, um, and rolling it out to the US as as the next port of call does make sense.
0: So you've just you've just finished a, a rather um, significant capital raise. Talk us through that process and and how you're planning to deploy
1: that capital. Yeah. So it was a a fairly targeted process in terms of it. we consider it a seed round. Um, and it was really approaching people that, that had um the right, not not just the money obviously, but, but also the ability to whether it's a s strategically advise and, and participate in the growth mm-hmm. of the business through through their experience, through their network, um, or one of the investors that came on board is actually a company called Quick Step. Uh that they're a, a listed uh defense manufacturing company in the aerospace business and they specialize in, in carbon fiber. Um, and, and again, there's a synergy there in terms yes. of yep. using yep. their capability awesome. to scale our manufacturing, uh, but also in in us exposing them to the unmanned market and to the the yep. services side of it, where it's not just a sale of one item uh, and then the customer goes off and uses it. Um, there's there's a sort of recurring interaction. There's an ongoing uh, support, training, uh, operational side. Uh, where it's, it's more than just a manufacturing relationship, and so Quickstep is really interested in that. Um, the rest of the investors in this round were effectively high-high network and high-high net worth individuals um, with with a, a patient capital approach, where they're looking for uh, a long-term return and uh, being part of the journey with Carbonics. Yeah. Um, the the preparation for it uh, was was very well. It was an interesting experience. You. you you start out um, taking a step back and looking at the business from the outside and saying, if I were an investor looking at it critically, um, what are the things, what are the questions that I would ask? <laughs> yeah. um,
0: what was that like? <laughs>
1: yeah, well, um, it's a, having the discipline to do that, I think is yeah. very rewarding. Yeah. Um, because again, for, for a startup, I think we, we had our house in order, uh, which was a, a good, good bit of feedback. Um, but then you start, uh, sitting down and effectively doing doing pitches, um and, and you do get questions from different perspectives um and then you sort of have to go through the the process of uh answering them and and whether not necessarily they hadn't thought of it before but you'd thought of it maybe not those terms and, and you <clears> had to <throat> sort of spell it out a bit more clearly or you know put put evidence behind it so that side of it that the preparation um was a great exercise to do it just makes you step up a level in terms of the the presentation the professionalism the documentation um, the way you, you talk about the business the, the, the way you, you analyze the gaps and so on um, and then the, the the different sort of attitudes and approaches that different investors have was fascinating as well um, there's one conversation for example that's sort of a bit funny in hindsight but um, the it was a, a a private fund uh, where the, their mandate was mostly, that they were open to other things, but they always end up investing in software. And, and the argument is that software is easily scalable, which, which makes sense. Mm-hmm. You can make a copy yeah. of a piece yeah. of software very cheaply for free and, and distribute it. So that scaling makes sense. Um, but in this realm, um, the reality is that for every instance of a piece of software being used, uh, there has to be a piece of hardware that, that flies the mission that gets the data. Uh, so if the software side of the, the drone world can scale, then the, the hardware sc- side must scale with it. Um, and, and really getting that across and saying that it, it's it's all well and good for, for everyone to go into this sort of low barrier to entry uh, competitive realm of the post-processing and the command and control and all the different niches of software. Um, but the hardware side is is really, um it, it's difficult and it's it's uh, capital intensive and the, there's there's challenges to it and that's actually a barrier to entry but but if you get it right um the, there's a vast opportunity there to to actually provide the thing that flies the mission uh, so so that that was an example of the the kind of conversations that we had and um seeing the different perspectives and the different critiques and and how to answer them um but it was an enjoyable process it, it really sort of made us tighten our focus and and look at look at the business really objectively Uh, and as it turned out there was appetite for it and now we're up and running
0: well it's um certainly an amazing story with um a very unique proposition you're bringing to the market dario we wish you all the very best uh for the years ahead we will be following carbonics with much interest And we wish you nothing but success. Dario Valenza, founder of Carbonics, thank you for coming on to the reports today.
1: Thank you. It was really enjoyable. I hope to be back soon.